We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it The war games that had been conducted by Manstein on 7 February 1940 at the headquarters of Army Group A and then subsequently other war games by other people were all about the problem of getting through the Ardennes and then over the Meuse River. I can't imagine that Manstein would have left his plans up in the air after that point, but Halder had gotten rid of him to command a new corps that didn't yet exist and no more forward planning happened. On 13th May, Guderian got across the Meuse, and then everyone at the various army, army group and the Führer's headquarters scratched their heads. What now? Incredible. The most respected general staff in the world, and they had no idea what to do once they were over the Meuse. The only two people that had the exact plan were... Manstein and Guderian, and now Manstein was gone from where he could have helped everything to run smoothly. So now we have Panzer Corps Guderian and Panzer Corps Reinhardt charging off to the channel, as Manstein had wanted. And we have the higher echelons of the German field armies all the way up to the Führer himself, all in a flap about this. Soon, the greatest military genius of all time, Grosta Feldherr Allerseiten, and I mean Adolf Hitler, of course, was going to go into a meltdown. The Panzers were plunging forward to the Channel Coast. They changed modern war from the linear tactics that it applied for the last thousand years to non-linear tactics. This was a revolution, just not a French one. Guderian had spent the recent years since Hitler began to build up the German army, training his newly minted Panzer commanders to get rid of the fear, quite proper until then, that had been drilled into them of exposed flanks and rear. Guderian had said, Exposed flanks are the nicest thing there is for Panzer units. The longer they are, the better. Apart from these few elite Panzer commanders, almost all senior officers in the German army had their instinctive and absolutely correct fear of gaps in lines and exposed flanks from everything that they knew and had experience of up to 13 May 1940. There was the important exception, of course, of World War I Stostrups. With the Panzer advance developing at ever-increasing speed through the enemy's rear areas and out of contact with the trudging infantry following behind, the German High Command found this a terrifying situation. It was insanity was what it was. Understandably, the senior commanders of the German army properly and repeatedly demanded that the advance of the Panzers had to be slowed so that the infantry divisions 
assigned to protect their flank and rear, could close up with them. For Guderian, the punzers couldn't go fast enough. His motto was that any hesitation means strengthening the enemy. So long as you yourself stay in motion, so long will you also keep the enemy in motion and prevent him from getting a strong foothold. Guderian wasn't afraid of exposed flanks. He believed that bewildering the enemy with rapid thrusts was the best flank protection he could want. At 22.30 on 13 May, Guderian ordered an attack towards Rethel. It was 50 kilometres away. For soldiers experienced in the slow advances of the First World War, that was just a laughable proposition. Kleist, Guderian's commander, was on a roller coaster ride of emotions. Normally cautious, at 18.30 on the next day, 14 May, he agreed with Guderian's proposition to advance to Rethel. But then three and a half hours later, at 2200 on 14 May, Kleist lost his nerve again. He changed his order. The Panzer divisions now were to advance only to the line of Montigny-Bouvelemont. Guderian accused Kleist of giving away their victory. That line was only four kilometres from where the Panzers were when the order was issued. Kleist must have begun to get a feel for how quickly things were developing under Guderian's leadership. Kleist changed the order again, back to authorising the advance to Rethel. The next day, 15th May, Kleist had changed his mind yet again. He wanted the Panzers to halt. In his memoirs, Panzer leader Guderian wrote, I neither would nor could agree to these orders which involved the sacrifice of the element of surprise we had gained and of the whole initial success that we had achieved. He got Kleist to allow him to continue to advance for another 24 hours. In taking advantage of this order, and before Kleist yet again changed his mind, Guderian ordered his punces forward as fast as they could go. By the end of 16 May, Guderian's punces had breached the chain of hills to the west of the Ardennes Canal. It was a dramatic moment. Nothing now stood any longer between Guderian, the punces, and the channel. The higher army command now lost control of the Panzers. They were independent of higher command. At the meeting that I talked about in the last program, when Guderian met up with Kempf at Montcornet, they began to untangle their columns and work out who would use what roads. This was normally the job of the higher command. Guderian and his Panzer commanders were not delusional. Their estimate of the situation of their enemy was correct. The French resistance had been broken. Winston Churchill, in his History of the Second World War, wrote, The German tanks, the dreaded Chars Allemands, ranged freely through the open country without the slightest opposition. Their officers looking out of the open cupolas and waving jauntily to the inhabitants. Eyewitnesses spoke of crowds of French prisoners marching along with them. Many 
still carrying their rifles, which were from time to time collected and broken under the tanks. I was shocked by the utter failure to grapple with the German armour, and by the swift collapse of all French resistance once the fighting front had been pierced. On 16 May, there was a 100-kilometre gap in the French front line that the Panzer divisions could plunge through unopposed. The only thing that could stop the Panzers now was the German leadership, military and political. And that was about to happen. Both sides had lost their nerves, the French and the German leadership. Early on the morning of 17 May, Guderian was peremptorily ordered by Kleist to stop his attack immediately. It seemed that he had already ignored Kleist's order forbidding him to cross the line of Vervain, Montcornet, Dizy, Le Gros, that he had issued on 16 May at 14.30 hours. The orders provided that only strong advanced detachments were to cross that line to seize the bridges across the Oise River. To get Guderian back into line, Kleist ordered a meeting with him at the airfield at Montcornet at 0700 hours. How did that halt order come about? In the first place, the order was issued by von Rundstedt on the morning of 16 May. He wanted to temporarily stop the Panzer formations so that the following infantry divisions could close up. The Beaumont-Montcornet line, he ordered, was to be crossed only by advanced detachments. Otherwise, the Sombre-Oise line could not be crossed without his approval. In truth, though, the pressure to halt the advance of the Panzers came from the greatest military genius of all time, Gruster Feldherr Alleseiten, Adolf Hitler, who issued War Directive Number 12 against the wishes of his Chief of Staff, Franz Helder, and the Commander-in-Chief, Colonel General von Brauchitsch. Halder's diary entry of 18th May records the events of the previous day. It read, The Führer has an incomprehensible anxiety about the southern flank. He is absolutely opposed to the continuation of operations towards the west, let alone the southwest, and still clings to the northwestern idea. This led to an extremely unpleasant difference of opinion in the Führer's headquarters, between the Führer on the one hand and the Commander-in-Chief and myself on the other. A directive was issued on this occasion, which is a confirmation in writing of our conversation, which took place at 1000 hours. Conversations between the Commander-in-Chief and Colonel-General von Rundstedt and my conversations with Selmut produced the effects which the Führer desired. Sharp switch of forward divisions to the southwest, main body of motorized forces to be ready to move to the west. In other words, the Panzers were halted, not by the French, that was no longer in their power, but by Hitler. In his memoirs, Guderian records his astonishment and his disappointment over the fact that Hitler himself 
who after all had approved the bold idea behind the attack operation, would order our advance to be stopped at once? Major Henning von Treskow received the telephone call from Hitler's headquarters halting the panzers. Treskow, another man who would join the 20th July plot to assassinate Hitler, was the operations officer at Army Group A's headquarters. He exploded. But that is sheer madness. We have got the whole thing rolling now. We have to get to the coast as quickly as possible. And we are supposed to stop now? Did someone change the operation plans? And why? Hitler's explanation was set out in the war diary of Army Group A. It reads, The Führer underscores the special significance of the southern flank, not only to the operations of the army as a whole, but also in political and psychological terms. Under no circumstances must there be, at this particular moment, anywhere, any setback that would give a fatal boost not only to the military, but also, above all, to the political leadership of our enemy. At this particular moment, the decision is not to be found so much in our rapid thrust to the channel, but rather in as quickly as possible establishing absolutely reliable defense readiness along the Ain, in the area around Léon, and later on along the Somme. Hitler, despite later propaganda from Goebbels and other Nazi sources, didn't have the foggiest idea of the concept behind Manstein's sickle-cut plan, although he would later claim that the idea was his. Karl-Heinz Freiser, in his book Blitzkrieg Legend, wrote, It was not just at Dunkirk, but earlier already at Montcornet, that the politician Hitler something entirely new in the German military history, massively interfered in the course of a military operation. To that extent, 17 May 1940 marks a break. The German general staff, which at that time was highly regarded all over the world, constituted an intellectual elite whose decisions were guided by sober professionalism. Now an element of incalculability and even irrationality had infiltrated this institution. The problem was not so much Hitler's deficient military knowledge, but rather the dependence on his extreme mood swings. The Führer again and again swung back and forth between extreme overestimation of the possibility and exaggerated disaster moods. The strange thing was that his nervousness grew more and more during Operation Sicklecut. The more clearly success began to emerge, Hitler, who allegedly was the only one who was convinced of the operation's success, could hardly grasp the facts when he learned of the final breakthrough at Sedan and stammered about a miracle. Horrified, he looked at the situation map as the German panzers, without any units along their flanks, pushed forward in the form of a narrow sickle. On 17 May, Helder wrote in his diary, An unpleasant day, the Führer is 
terribly nervous, frightened by his own success. He is afraid to take any chances, and so he would rather pull the reins on us. Puts forward the excuse that it is all because of his concern for the left flank. Kleist now had the unpleasant task of going to reprimand Guderian for doing something that he agreed with. Kleist, who had borne the brunt of the fury from the top about Guderian's continued advance contrary to orders, hoed into him. He accused him of disregarding his halt line order and continuing the advance beyond it. Guderian waited for Kleist to finish what he had to say, and then, in his memoirs, he said, When the first storm passed and he had stopped to draw a breath, I asked that I might be relieved of my command. General von Kleist was momentarily taken aback, but then he nodded and ordered me to hand over my command to the most senior general of my corps, and that was the end of our conversation. Resignation is the tool par excellence of the person who thinks that they're indispensable to their superiors to get them off their back. But it didn't work. This time, General Leutmann Rudolf Feil, the commander of the 2nd Panzer Division, was given command of Guderian's Panzer Corps, and General Major Heinrich von Prittwitz und Gaffron took over the command of the 2nd Panzer Division. For once, though, Guderian hadn't in fact ignored his orders. His advance had been so swift that the ordnance officer, who was bringing the order to him, didn't catch up to Guderian until 17th May. By then, Guderian had already gone way ahead of that line. So the order was out of date. Guderian took it to have been superseded and no longer operative. He continued his advance. This affair is known as the Montcornet Command Crisis. The shock news of Guderian resigning went like a lightning bolt to the top generals. This thing was happening. Who would know how to bring it to a conclusion? General List, Guderian's army commander, immediately set out for Guderian's headquarters. Well, his old headquarters at Panzerkorps Guderian. On orders from von Rundstedt, Army Group A's commander, List's job was to restore Guderian to his command, smooth things over, and get things on the move again. All subject to the panic concerns of Zafura, of course. List met Guderian at Montcornet. He apologetically explained that the orders to halt had come from OKH and not Kleist. Guderian then negotiated permission to push strong reconnaissance forces forward on the condition that he wouldn't move his core command post forward. That was a trick to resume his advance with all of his forces. Guderian could do what he said, but he could work around it to get the advance going again. He immediately issued orders for the attack by his punters to be resumed, which had been halted for some hours. To work around interference, as he saw it from his superiors, from now on, Guderian didn't issue orders over the radio. He sent them using field telephones at the core command post, 
that had been left behind, using it as a kind of telephone exchange. The command post was connected with his advanced echelon with a long field cable. By not using radio, Guderian couldn't be located by the monitoring service of the next higher command authorities to get a fix on his position and find out just how far he had advanced and with what. Officially, the Panzer formations were forced mostly to mark time for about two days, although, as I've said, Guderian ignored that and resumed his advance somewhat earlier. The advance was secretly continued in some sectors authorised by Guderian, and there were some vitally important unauthorised advances of individual commanders who accepted the high risk of displeasing the Führer. The most conspicuous of these was Rommel's thrust at Avennes, an example of military disobedience that I'll cover in the next program. Halder had already tried to circumvent the Holt Order at Montcornet. He interpreted Hitler's Holt Order as applying to the rear area supply services, not to the Panzer spearheads. By this piece of self-deception, Hitler's order was loosened up, so that Le Cateau and Saint-Quentin, on the other side of the designated holding line, were allowed to be taken with strong advance detachments. But when Hitler figured out what Helder was up to, he had a fit of rage and ordered army headquarters in the severest manner immediately to take the necessary measures to cover the south flank. It wasn't until 1800 on 18th May, after another situation briefing, that Helder was able to get permission to start for the next day. There was in fact, no threat from the south, Helder said later. The army was at all times most accurately informed by Luftwaffe reconnaissance. I was able to command as if during a map exercise. Lies, chief of the Foreign Army's West Section of Army Intelligence, reported that it was already realised on 15 May that there was no threat whatsoever of counteroffensive against the southern flank. He stated... On the German side, we got the impression that the French command was completely paralysed. Five days had gone by and we were still not able to detect anything pointing to a major counter-operation. It is certain that the French command on 15 May at all echelons dropped the idea of mounting a counter-attack against the southern flank of the breakthrough. But Hitler was mesmerised with the totally groundless delusion of a repeat by the French of what is known as the miracle on the Marne in September 1914 that led to the failure of the Schlieffen Plan when the French launched an unexpected counterattack into the German flank. But May 1940 was definitely not September 1914. On 18 May, while the Panzers were still stopped, Hitler wrote to Mussolini in a self-congratulatory mood, having halted his Panzers, saying, The 1914 miracle on the Marne will not be repeated. The chance of winning the first prize, winning World War II, was slipping away, but it was still just within reach 
provided there were no more cock-ups by Hitler. In the next program, we're going to join Rommel for his amazing race. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.